We are beginning a new study in the book of Luke, and so we're going to start where Luke starts in chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 25 verses for us. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abia, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statues of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. and They were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us a people prepared, ready to receive and marvel over the good news of Advent. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know you all feel this. We feel this in our family, but time just moves faster during the holidays. Once you hit Reformation Day and then Thanksgiving and then Christmas, it all kind of flies by. And so we did something as a family for the first time ever. I don't know if we'll do it again. We set up our Christmas tree before Thanksgiving. I know, big shock. We didn't let any music, uh, Christmas music in the house, but we did set up the tree. And, and so we're realizing that no matter how early you start to decorate and and think about Christmas, time moves just as fast, right? You still blow through it, even if you've got the lights up in Thanksgiving. And it's hard. 
It's hard every year to slow and to pause and to think and to reflect. This is such a tremendous thing that we observe and celebrate, but it can be so hard and so distracting to actually think upon these truths. Well, Christian, the Lord knows this. He knows that we move fast and he knows that we are easily distracted. He knows that we are not ready for Advent this year. And so Luke's introduction is all about making us ready. Believer and unbeliever alike, making us ready to see and savor what God is doing in Advent and Christmas in the sending of his son. And Luke says, this is going to happen in two ways. Number one, God is going to give us certainty about these truths through his word. And number two, God will give us preparedness through his prophet. We're going to get certainty. We're going to get preparedness. We're going to be ready for the coming of Jesus, he says. So let's start with number one. God is going to give us the gift of certainty. I really appreciate people who can get to the point. They don't beat around the bush. They don't call a meeting and you chit-chat for half the time. They sit down and they say, this is why I called the meeting. This is why I picked up the phone. This is what I want to talk about. I appreciate someone who gets directly to the point of what they're about. Our family has been getting into ultimate fighting, UFC, and we've been watching that for a season. And, and Conor McGregor, when he famously was on his rise to fame, in one of his first big fights that he won, he was interviewed afterwards, and he said... We're not here to take part. We're here to take over. And I appreciate that forthrightness. I want to hear from you. Where is this leading? Where is this going? And I appreciate when someone will tell me that. Well, that's what the gospel writers do. They don't beat around the bush. They tell us exactly why they took all this time to write what they're writing. And John does that in his gospel he is very clear to say, I didn't just write this for posterity. This is not a bedtime story to tell. These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why I wrote this. That's why I put my life on the line to testify to this, so that you will believe what I am saying is true and that you will have eternal life. I love that. I love being told exactly why I'm reading this. And that is what Luke is going to do for us in verses 1 through 4. Now, our author Luke is like a lot of us in that he was a Gentile who wasn't there during the time of Jesus. He never saw Jesus. He never met Jesus. He never heard from Jesus. He wasn't there at the birth. He wasn't there during his earthly ministry. He wasn't there when he died. He wasn't there to witness his resurrection from the dead. He wasn't there which puts Luke and us in an awkward position, we are being pressed to believe things we can't see. And I don't do well with that. And apparently Luke doesn't either because also like a lot of us, he's educated, thoughtful, and not at all interested in fairy tales. He's not here for that. So Luke says he's writing both Luke and Acts. He writes these two letters, which are actually most of our New Testament. Luke writes more of the New Testament than anybody else by word count. And he writes them to a man named Theophilus, as he just told us. And we don't know much about him, except 
We suspect he was wealthy. We suspect he was a man of standing. Maybe he was supporting Luke in his ministry. But he says that Theophilus has been taught about Jesus, verse 4, is most likely a Christian, but is wanting to have his faith confirmed. He has heard it, he's received it, he's believed it, but he still has some doubts and he wants to have those things confirmed. And so Luke says in his introduction, that's exactly what he sets out to do. He is here to confirm faith. So verse one, he says, I'm going to compile a careful narrative. Verse two, and this is huge, he says, I'm only accepting first-hand eyewitness accounts. That's the only material that makes it into my gospel. Verse three, he says, and even that is gonna be corroborated by events and things that I have been following closely all this time. And if we do that in verses one through three, we can achieve the ultimate aim that we're after, verse four, that you may have certainty. Theophilus, that you may have certainty, church. I am writing a detailed account that certainty is a possibility. In other words, Luke is after genuine, historical, verifiable, personally witnessed, reliable details about Jesus. He's not interested in imagination. He's not interested in gossip or hearsay or I heard someone say that someone else saw that Jesus did such and such. He's not interested. He's not interested in cleaning up the narrative, taking out potentially awkward or hard or confusing things about Jesus. He is here for the Jesus of history. And I hope we are too. He says, I'm going to give you the facts. Now think about it. Luke is making a pretty bold claim. He's telling us why he's writing this, but it's a pretty bold claim about this account. He is saying that his gospel, and I think you could say uh, by representation all of scripture, that God is giving us his people certainty about what is true. We hold in our hands careful, studied, witnessed, well-known material of what was actually happening that is designed to lead thinking, reasoning, logical people to believe. If you're a skeptic and you read firsthand accounts that sound reasonable and you say, I now believe, Luke says, that's why I wrote this. If you have doubts and you wonder if any of this is true, and you wonder where this writing came from, and you read eyewitness accounts, and you as a believer are confirmed in your faith, that's what Luke is all about. He is concerned with history. Luke doesn't begin his account once upon a time. And he doesn't begin the story long, long ago in a place far, far away. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abia. Right away, we are situated in a actual time because Herod is going to die at 4 BC. So this has to happen before that. And in a place, this is located in Jerusalem, and in a situation, we are in Roman-occupied Judea where the priesthood no longer has governing rights, but they're relegated to temple service. This thing rings of history. It rings of truth. God is placing this gospel 
God is placing this book, the Bible, in our hands to give us certainty about the truths of Advent. That's a gift to us this season. We can have certainty from eyewitness accounts, but God is also concerned with our preparedness, as he goes on to say. Now, we expect when we open up Luke's gospel that we get introduced to Jesus right away, but that's really not how the story happened, and so that is not how Luke records it. We expect to meet in the opening chapter Jesus, but we get introduced to a man named John, and we call him John the Baptist. So here's the story. You'll remember that when we open up our New Testaments, when we're in the Gospels, we don't pick up where the Old Testament left off. The Old Testament left us at Malachi, but between Malachi and Matthew, there's actually almost 400 years of history between the two, and a bunch of things happened in that historical time. If you came to whining with Josephus, with our Jeff Payne, then you would have known all these details and could tell them back to me. But the point is, there was no written inspired scripture during that period of time. We have no book of the Bible, nothing recorded from that time, so we often call it the silent years. The people of God are waiting to hear from God. And in the middle of that, we get introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth of the priestly line, righteous before God, but carrying this grief with them that they do not have a child, that they're barren. Now, Zechariah's name means something like Yahweh has remembered and how fitting to zoom in on this couple, even though there have been these silent years, God still has a remnant of his people that are ready and waiting and listening for him and God is ready to speak. Zechariah serves as a priest. He's one of thousands, even 10,000s of priests that served at that time, and it was a major operation on the temple complex, and so of all these priests, they were divided into 24 divisions, and every division had a a two-week term that they would serve at the temple, and they would do a bunch of things at the temple, but one of the great honors of serving at the temple was they would draw lots to see which priest would be able to burn the incense in the holy place at the evening sacrifice. And as far as we can tell, this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Once you drew that lot, once you got to do it, you wouldn't get to do it again. A lot of guys never did it. So this is incredible. I mean, Zechariah is there and he draws that lot. He will be the one to burn the incense this evening. And it's a dramatic scene. The whole crowd, thousands of people gather outside the temple. The temple is huge. It's about the size of the state house. It's as tall as the state house and that wide and that deep. Uh, Herod's construction, and so it's a massive complex, and thousands of people are there, and Zechariah goes up the stairs into the temple, and he goes into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the, the holy place where the table and the incense are. And he goes to burn the incense and he goes to pray and he's supposed to be praying for all of Israel as their representative priests in the holy place and for their repentance and their preparedness for the Lord, not even knowing the truth of Advent. But Zechariah is not going to waste a chance inside the temple itself to pray what he wants to pray. So maybe he does the little Israel prayer But then he turns around and prays the thing that he has prayed for in agony for his entire marriage. Lord, give us a child. 
And amazingly, as he's praying, an angel appears, Gabriel, dazzling before him, and he's terrified, and the angel gives him incredible news, the thing that just left his mouth in prayer. The angel says, I shall answer, the Lord will answer. You're going to have a son, his name's going to be John, and he will be great before the Lord. Now, Gabriel goes on to give a huge job description for John the Baptist. I'm not sure Zechariah was paying attention to any of that right now. We have it down for our sake. I'm not sure how much of that he caught. But Gabriel goes on to say in verses 14 through 17, this is what John the Baptist is going to do. He's going to have a ministry that will be cause for great joy. Don't often think about John the Baptist as having a ministry of joy. He's kind of taking names and kicking Pharisees' butts. But, but, but Gabriel is saying it's going to be great joy for people to hear him. He's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be in the lineage of Samson and Samuel, other Nazarites in the Bible who will never drink alcohol. Interestingly enough, Jesus will not be a Nazarite. He will come eating and drinking, but, but this is John's lot and his service before the Lord. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled from the womb, and he's going to have the spirit and power of Elijah, which is the very thing the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, promised, that there will be a forerunner of the Messiah himself, and he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then verse 16, he says, this is what John will do. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, verse 17, to make ready for the Lord a people prepare. God's people aren't ready. John the Baptist will come to make them ready. We heard about being a purchased people in our Union with Christ series, but now we're hearing about being a prepared people. When a prophet comes in the Old or New Testament, they come with the same message, repent and believe. Whether you are a long-standing believer who has resisted the Lord or you are new to the faith to begin with, the prophet will come and say, repent and believe. A prophet will come and call sin, sin, and will call God's grace that good and make us ready to throw off the old self and embrace the new self, God's new mercies for us in Christ. That's what the prophet does. So if Luke writes Luke, the gospel, to make us certain of God's salvation, then the prophet John comes to make us know our neediness for God's salvation. Luke declares it to be true. John declares it to be personal. This is a historical fact that actually happened and is true for all time, but this is a personal reality that is true for you and for me. You see God's providence in that? That he would speak to our hearts in both of those ways, our our reasoning and our logic and our understanding, wanting to be verified that this is true, but then also our hearts and our emotions wanting to know that this is true for me. The word and the prophet speak into our hearts and tell us this is true and this is for you. Now, if I were writing this chapter in Luke, that's where I'd end. I would end with that. That's a perfect kind of summation of what God is here to do. We said that we're not ready for Advent, so God comes to get his people ready for Advent. He gives us his word, which gives us certainty. He gives us the prophet, which makes it personal to us, gives us preparedness. Boom, done, that'll preach. But before I can pray and get the worship team up here and get us marching out the door confident in our salvation, 
Zechariah has to open his big mouth. Look at verse 18. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I like how he said that. I'm old. My wife is not old. She's advanced in years. But he's saying how? And this confused me for a while because Zechariah says how, and Mary in our next sermon says how, and the angel comes down hard on Zechariah, but not on Mary, so what's the deal? Well, I think when Mary says how, she's saying, what are the means that this is going to happen? Like, you do remember that I'm a virgin, right? So how is this going to happen? But when Zechariah says how, I think he's asking, prove it to me. What's the proof that this is going to happen? Zechariah doubts an angel to his face. When Abraham was told he would have a son in his old age, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Romans 4.3. When Zechariah is told he will have a son, he doubts. And look at the scene. Everything is designed for Zechariah to believe that this is true. It's been 400 years of silence. He gets the lottery ticket of being the guy to burn the incense. All of this is happening not in his living room, but in the holy place of the temple. And it's not a person talking to him. It is an angel appearing personally to him alone. And if there was ever a softball pitch of faith like Zechariah, here you go, just, just believe this thing. And he whiffs. He whiffs. He doesn't believe the angel. As one commentator writes bluntly, his reaction reveals that his hope for a child was all but dead, even though it kept itching like a scab. He went through the motions of religious activity, prayer, priestly service, but after all these years, he could not bring himself to believe that God would ever really do anything about it. What saint has not felt that? I've prayed and I've asked and it's on my prayer list and I told my prayer partners, and I've asked so many times, I'm tired of asking, but I'll keep on asking, and I don't even know if the Lord hears me, and I don't know if he's ready to respond, and I don't know if anything is ever going to change. Each of us have felt that. Each of us have felt that profoundly. But what I want us to see here is that even though God puts everything in place for faith, He gives this word, this carefully compiled word, witnesses, so we can be certain of this. And then he brings his prophets to speak this truth, to get us repentant and ready. Even so, even when we doubt and resist and pull back, God will still achieve his purposes. When Zechariah doubts, does it affect God's salvation plan in the slightest? Is there any delay? Is there any fumbling? Is there any plan B that needs to be developed because Zechariah doesn't pull through? Of course not. God's plan of salvation for us is a 20,000 ton 
freight train hurtling down the track, and Zechariah's doubt is like a penny on the rail saying, I'm not sure this will happen, but it happens exactly as God said it would happen, exactly in the time God said it would happen, and exactly in the means God said it would happen, good news of great joy comes for all people. Zechariah misses the train on the first jump. He misses it, but he's got nine months of silence to think about it and get back on the train and enjoy God's salvation because God will do it. We can doubt. We can fumble. We can resist. We can get distracted. The season can move too quickly. But God will have his way. He will make us a people prepared and certain and ready for the coming of his son. God makes his people ready. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your kindness and your grace and mercy to us that even when we resist Even when we doubt, even when we stumble through an Athanasius creed and can't make heads or tails of what we think about the incarnation, it is true, it is right, it is good, it's available to be certain of through eyewitness accounts, it's available to be prepared for through the spoken word of your prophet, and together you will make us ready to repent and believe and receive the good news of Christ. We praise you for this in Jesus' name, amen.